Welcome to Remotely Creative, a RimCab podcast where we talk to artists, designers, and wildcards about how they're surviving in the era of COVID-19 isolation. I'm your host, Rob Flattery. Greg Ellis is a creative production designer who has worked with a variety of performing artists, including Pretty Lights, Steve Aoki, SDS9, and more. So we're going to jump into part two of the Greg Ellis interview. If you missed part one, just go one episode back on the Remotely Creative podcast to episode number 28. Um, I got another question um, from a listener. This is from Dylan. He wants to know, does the energy of the audience, venue, and artist play a role in the in what visuals you present in the moment, or is it mostly predetermined? All day. All day. There is, and I've spoken about this on my podcast and in some other interviews that I've done in the past. I plan zero. Maybe, maybe 5% on a good day. No, I, I think that's the best way to do it. I, I, you know, it's planned anything. Here's the thing. And you gotta, you gotta look at it at a, from a couple of different perspectives. First off, and I'm going to keep this isolated within the world of pretty lights because it's obviously the thing that I'm most known for. It's the thing that I've done the longest. Um, it's also the most successful. So we'll, we'll look, we'll just keep it in that realm. Um, in the early days of pretty lights, when it was Derek and a computer and a drummer. That was it. And it was very, it was a very straightforward approach. Um, let's play some tracks. Let's throw a party. That was, that was the mindset for the most part. Um, me coming from the jam band world, I was like, I'm going to get real, real bored with this real fast. If I don't, if I don't kind of do something about it. You know, the music's awesome, the party's awesome, but, like, I need more out of this than that. And so I took it upon myself to just start trying different things from night to night. And then, you know, I would talk with Derek, and we would, you know, whether it was, like, mix up the set list or, or like, kind of, like, weave songs together or whatever, right? We started implementing certain concepts, from the jam band world into our performance. And so in the early days, um, you know, and now, you know, you're, you're, when you're on the, when you're on the, 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 the incline or whatever, right. Um, you have a lot to prove to people. You have to prove yourself, prove your worth, prove your ability, prove this, prove that there's so much, you know, those first three, three, four years or whatever, all you're doing is proving things to people prove that you can accomplish this prove that you can sell out this many tickets prove that you can build this big of a state whatever right um you get so inundated by all of that that you start doing things in a safe way and so in the very early days it was like let's try all these fun little things right and then as it gets bigger you're like you start to kind of reel it in a little bit and you're like oh my god there's all of these other things happening i can't like i can't risk you know, messing up or whatever. And so it went from being kind of an open palette to kind of getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, right? To the point where for a very brief period of time, 75, 80% somewhere in that range of the show was very much like cued out, predetermined from a lighting standpoint. Now we were still switching up the set list and stuff and that made it sort of challenging because... 
I would have to kind of rearrange things or we had this weird MIDI sync thing where Derek would have to tell me which song we were playing before it happened so I could have it accessible within the MIDI chain. And like, and we tried a bunch of different things, right? And that was its own adventure, but, and it kept it interesting. But at the end of the day, artistically, I was very much like, ugh, this sucks. <laughs> and uh, so as, as the, the need or the, uh, the self-inflicting kind of desire to prove started to fade. So did the openness once again, or the openness started to come back. Okay. And that like the, uh, we started to relax a little bit and you start to be like, all right, what can we, where can this go now? You know? And so then you get into like that middle section of Pretty Lights, the 2014, 2015, the big band stuff where it was like, okay, now like these guys have charts and these guys are doing this thing, but there's still a looseness to it. And so then all of a sudden it goes from like 75, 80% planned down to maybe like 50%. And you start mixing it up a little bit more, mixing it up a little bit more. And then we get to Telluride. And this was the day that everything changed for me. The first time that Pretty Lights played Telluride, um, we had a discussion about how special the thing that we were about to do was. We were all so very aware of how um, blessed and whatever we were to have that opportunity to get to do our own headlining sort of mini festival esque thing at Telluride because almost nobody gets to do that. The town doesn't let it happen. There's a lot of festivals and a lot of people play Telluride, but there are only a handful of artists that get to go there and do it on their own terms. And we got to be one of them and we got to do it twice. But that first time was really something that, um, it affected all of us very deeply and we were very cognizant of it to the point where we were like, let's, this was the, <laughs> this is where it gets funny. Let's prove to them that they didn't make a mistake by letting us do this, but by proving to them that, that we were going to let everything go. We were going to get rid of all of the constraints. We were going to just, we were just going to explore. We were going to take that freedom, like that, that feeling that you have when you're in a place like Telluride, Colorado, where you feel freer than you've ever felt. You're in the middle of nowhere. You're on this beautiful mountaintop. You're whatever. Like we are going to embrace nature. We're going to embrace these people. We're going to embrace the situation and we're just going to see what happens. And we're going to let the inspiration of that moment drive us wherever it takes us. And I, <laughs> I, I get goosebumps even just talking about it. That's how much it like, even five years later or whatever it's been now, it, it impacted what we were doing and how we moved forward as a, as a, as a unit. Um, it went from whatever we were at, you know, previous, let's say we were planned 50, improv 50, improv 100. It, and, and I'm speaking for myself. Right. The band, you know, when you have that many people on stage, there's, there are things happening. They're communicating during the show, whether it's visually, whether it's verbally with our little secret system. 
there's a lot of things happening, right? To make sure that like they're all on the same page. They're all playing the same song. They're all playing in the same key, whatever. But as a visual artist, you're kind of the, you know, you're the, the wild card. You're, uh, I'm out there by myself just being a Well, at that time, we still had our video artist, Dave, uh, with us. Um, but like, but, you know, it was full on freedom. And then when Dave actually left, and that's when I started doing the analog stuff, I really, everything went completely out the window because now, even though I was improvising, we still had pre-recorded clips, right? So you plan that. You're planning the video element because you have pre-recorded visual elements. Mm -hmm. There's a plan that goes into that. And this is why I say it wasn't until the analog stuff that it truly became 100% improvisational. Because once I got this thing, we got a couple cameras on stage. There's no plan. I'm filming the I'm filming the band. I'm running it through the system. I'm doing my whack shit. I'm doing the lights, however the heck I'm doing it that night. Lasers are doing whatever the heck they're doing. Like, there's no pre-recorded content. There's no pre-recorded cues. There's no go button. There's nothing. It's just me, my eyes, my ears, and let's go. And so for the last three years of Pretty Lights. It was like I, I equate it to like like Miles Davis or something. It was like jazz up there for me because all I'm doing is I'm listening to the music. I'm listening to the audience. I'm watching the audience. I'm watching the band. I'm watching the, the cameras. Like I got this TV. I got this video screen next to me that's got every every feed of every camera, all 10 of them or whatever it is. So I can physically watch each band member close up from 200 feet away and I'm just feeding off of all of the energy. I'm feeding off of all of the experiences, whether the, whether it's windy, whether it's sunny, you know, all of it, it all affects me and I'm open to all of it. And it's like this lightning rod. I turn into a lightning rod for three hours every night. And every time I get struck, this wonderful thing happens. And it's like, and it's different every night and it's different every second. And you just let it happen. The ego disappears all the preconceived notions disappear, all of the concepts disappear, and you just go, let's see where this goes tonight. And I think that was the magic of like where, where my art form went because I stopped caring about, um, now don't get this wrong because I very much care about the quality of the performance, but I, you know, you get hung up on little things, right? Of course. But, but you can't, if you truly want to achieve greatness, you have to do it with a sense of fearlessness. And to do so, you have to also shed all of those little hangups that come along with, you know, all of these ideas that you have in your head. And so it took me a long time to get there. But at some point, this moment happened where, like, I was fearless I, I wasn't concerned with like, oh, oh, I hit the wrong button there. Or, oh, I went to the wrong color. It didn't matter anymore. None of it mattered because I knew that the bigger picture of it and the, and the majesticness of the experience far surpasses any little hiccups along the way. And having that like mindset, that true freedom to explore and to be artistic has created the greatest art I've ever presented to people because it 
no longer was I encumbered with, you know, it's like, I, I think of it as like a little chihuahua, like nipping at your heel, right? That was my, like, my ego almost, right? For so long, it was just like this little, this little monster that would just keep like annoying me because I would keep beating myself up for every stupid decision that I made, for every mistake that I made. And at some point I finally got rid of that stupid chihuahua and then it was, there was no turning back. And like, like, like the last Pretty Light shows, the 2018 Red Rock shows, mm-hmm. we took it even a step further. Um, and, and I don't ever suggest any organization ever do this, but like we had no pre-production, no rehearsal time. The first time I saw the light rig turn on was in front of 10,000 people. Ooh. And it was the greatest shows I've ever done in my life. I, I, they, I wasn't there, but I've heard that they're legendary. I mean, it's 15 minutes from my house. So, yeah. you know. And honestly, I couldn't have done that unless I had already reached that, that, like, that precipice of, of confidence, but also of like true egolessness or whatever that phrase is that, you know, where it was just like my thoughts, my feelings don't matter anymore. All of the things that I've learned over 20 years, all of the things that like that Derek has instilled in me about his aesthetics and about how the fans feel about certain things, all of those things are now ingrained in my head. So stop thinking and just do. And it just happened. And it was, it, it was. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I like the, how you kind of took us through the steps of, of what was planned to where it went and you know, obviously the thing that you're most proud of is when it's just all, you just all get there and just let it go. So yeah. um, I recommend that everyone do that at least once. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're, we're too stuffy and confined and setting parameters. So I like it. Yeah. I think you too, it's like, you know, we're all kind of, you know, we're all affected by our environments. Right. And we live in a time now where like everything is under a microscope, you know, whether it's, you know, what, here's, here's a great example. So there was a time in my life where like YouTube videos really became impactful over how a live show was perceived. Mm -hmm. Now, five, six, seven years ago, let's, Somebody, somebody out there, do me a favor. If you still have like an iPhone four, just go walk down the street, take a video and like direct message it to me. (laughs) And let's see how good a quality that is, right? Compared to what we're used to now. Now, this is one of those funny things where we talk about like, you know, like, like analog versus digital, but like, you know, the quality of those cameras five, six, seven years ago was just not what it is now. But yet, we are being picked apart by artists, managers, this thing, on these videos that are captured on a $700 telephone. Right. Well before, you know, it's time in, the, in like the limelight should have been from a video capturing standpoint. And we are being told that what we are doing is not good enough. And it's like, well... <laughs> If we're going to judge our performance on this shitty video that's on YouTube, I'm sorry, but like, I'll do better next time, I guess. I don't know. What, what do you want me to say to that? You right? didn't write it with better video feeds. 
Yeah, it's like, I mean, it, I'll tell you what. Hire, hire a real camera guy, set it up in front of the house, film the whole show. If I still mess it up that bad, then you can fire me. I don't know what to tell you, you know? But there was a time where, like, people were really, really, really nitpicking and, like, using these videos because they were so new at the time. And so many people were watching them. And so all of a sudden they became this odd, like, standard bearer for how a concert looks and how a concert is, is perceived, right? And I, my, my old argument was, I'm not doing the show for the people who record it on their phones. I'm doing it for the people who are there watching it. So it may not look good on camera, but I can guarantee you that those people who paid 56 bucks to come see us, they are not upset right now. <laughs> I, I've really enjoyed going to the concerts where they make you like lock your cell phones in the bags. I love it so much. I love it so much. I mean, I wish everybody would do that. Just, yeah, there's uh, what was there was another thing I think where they could like they could like literally do like a little like umbrella kind of like digital signal that basically disabled your phone. Yeah, the FCC is not real happy with that, but yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I think they did it in Europe, maybe where they could probably get away with that stuff a little bit more loosely. Yeah, so one of the movie theater chains um, is owned by a European uh, Regal. It's Regal Cinemas. Um, they're owned by a European company now, and they were like trying to install those in all their theaters. And then, so, yeah. like, that's not legal in America. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just remembered something I wanted. I got one more viewer question or listener yeah. question, but I, ha I wanted to share something with you. So, you're talking about light bulbs, and you're talking about this whole evolution of the light bulb, and nothing really changed until LED. And I'm, I'm talking about home consumer, you know. Just yeah, exactly. Like yeah. So I don't know if you know this, but the government was trying to pass a law um, to where all manufacturers had to switch over to production of LED bulbs by, I'm just going to throw that a year. You know, that happened in Europe. So it happened in Europe, but it never happened in America. Um, it never happened in America, but it was on the docket. And then like all the major bulb manufacturers were like, well, this is going to pass. We need to retool our equipment. They yep. retooled all the equipment for the LED bulbs. People who wanted um, incandescent uh, bulbs couldn't buy them because, yep. and then, you know, people were going crazy. They're like, I'd like that light. And then that actually bred all these little startup companies who make the the old school bulbs because it's not actually illegal. Um, yeah. I just thought that was a weird, when you told your story, I was thinking of that. So there's a couple of different things about that, that I'm not hundred percent clear on. Obviously power consumption is a big deal, right? The efficiency of led lighting versus a tungsten light is, is so much greater, right? Tenfold, hundredfold, whatever, whatever the math is, I don't even know, but there is, there is also this element of, and I think, you know, <laughs> can't uh, well i'll just i'll just come right out with it this shows how great america is and how terrible america is all at the same time because beyond the power consumption there is some studies out there that shows that the actual manufacturing of tungsten filaments is really bad for the environment mm -hmm. and it's the reason why well it's not the reason but it just goes to show you how irresponsible america is because while, yes, I am just as guilty as anybody, I've got 30 of them in this room, these, these old school Edison tungsten light bulbs. Um, but it just goes to show you how much America disregards 
environmental causes over, you know, over whether it's profits or trends or this thing or whatever the case is. Right. Um, why, why it, it swept across Europe pretty quickly and the industry, you know, like our industries were upset by it, but there's a, at least a level of understanding. Now I think I'm not hundred percent sure about this, but I do believe that there were some exceptions made for theatrical. Yeah. That's what uh, I'm saying. Consumer, consumer bulbs. Yeah. Like source four yeah. and all those guys got the, got the, yeah, exactly. so, you know, um, I, I'll tell you what, if, if the day comes where everyone is just like, here's the deal, we got to stop doing this. So be it, you know, cause I'll tell you right now, and you can say this about a lot of things, a lot of things in our life. What the hell good are these light bulbs going to do you? If this planet, if this entire planet is on fire or underwater or whatever the case may be, because all of the dumb decisions that we as humans are making are just accelerating that inevitable, you know, outcome. You know, you see it on the West Coast, you see it down in the Gulf. It's like there are a lot of bad things happening in nature and, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> and it's not nature's fault. It's ours. <laughs> totally. um, yeah. I, you know, light bulbs are dangerous. I found that out. Uh, I used to work in a movie theater when I was in high school. So, you know, movie theater bulbs are these big football-shaped bulbs that come in a, you know, a crazy case, and they come with gloves. And yeah. I was changing one of the bulbs once. I, like, went to pick it up, and my manager saw me. He's like, no, you got to put gloves on. And I'm like, oh, yeah. okay. You know. The oils will make it burnt or run too hot and then it'll explode. Explode, yeah. And, and so he was telling me, like, these things can explode, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, all right, what do we do with the old bulb? And he's like, well, we ship it back. And I was like, we're not doing that today. So I took the old bulb with on, went up on the roof of the movie theater, opened the dumpster, had the dumpster open outside. I was like, I don't believe how these are as dangerous as you say. Literally threw it into the trash can. Um, mind you, we're right next to the interstate. Uh, you know, it's where the movie theater is. Yeah. It was about 6 o'clock in the fall, so it was starting to get a little dark. Threw that thing down, loud explosion, all the garbage and old popcorn caught on fire. 20 minutes later, somebody from, you know, went and called 911. You know, this was the 90s, so. In, <laughs> yeah. Um, fire truck showed up. They're like, do you know what caused this? And we're like, uh, no, not at all. And they, and they put it out, and it was all contained in the, in the dumpster, so no harm, no foul. Nobody got a ticket, but that was the day I learned Oh, yeah. lighting is dangerous. <laughs> so I've got a similar story. Now it wasn't intentional, okay. but I, when I wasn't either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when rotations, we're good. When I was getting my start, I was working at a venue in New Haven, Connecticut called Toad's Place. Um, now this would have been in 2005 ish time. And uh, we, uh, we had a bunch of different, old school, big intelligent lights. And they had these big giant discharge bulbs, um, smaller than the projector bulb, but just as powerful, just as bright, probably even more compressed gas in those than in a projector, if I had to guess, but I, I don't know for certain, that part doesn't matter. So we have these lights on stage and the old lighting designer, this wacky old man, um, that's Love what you all are. You're going to turn into that. I'm just. I can't wait. I can't wait to be the wacky old man. Um, I'm kind of already there in a weird way. But, um, so he loved this effect. 
he had fog machines in the catwalk over the band okay. with a fan pushing it straight down. So it was almost like reverse cryo almost in a weird way. Um, but it was a fog machine, just a high-powered fan. And uh, one of these fog machines, the heating element started to go on it. And when a heating element goes on an old fog machine, it doesn't diffuse the liquid enough to turn it into fog. So then it just starts pissing. It like drips out, right? <laughs> well, if you're pushing it, it'll actually like spray. Oh. So it starts pissing hot fog juice, right? <laughs> and uh, thank God this happened during sound check and not during the actual show. This is the like, you know, sometimes you really just get lucky with these kind of things. And this is one of those moments. So this fog juice is just, I guess, and nobody told me it was happening, but this fog juice is just coming down, dripping, right? Apparently, it, it, it was landing right on one of these lights, and enough of it got inside the light onto the bulb to the point where the bulb exploded inside of the lighting fixture. And we heard this big pop, and we saw some smoke, and we were like, what the, what the hell was that? We opened up that light. And you would have thought that somebody lit a stick of dynamite inside of that thing. I mean, the gobo wheels were just obliterated. All of the mechanics inside of it were just gone, basically. Uh, it was one of the craziest things I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> grief. Yeah, I mean, I, that's the big thing for me for LEDs. I'm like, well, you know, it's not as dangerous. It's not as dangerous. Yeah. Diode instead of gas. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, last uh, listener question. Question from John. Do you think lighting plays a larger role now than it did when you first started? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and this is kind of a multifaceted thing. I'll start, with, I'll start with my own personal experience in the sense of, especially in the early days of pretty lights, and I'll, and I'll take this to the, the rise of DJ culture as a whole. You know, for the entirety of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and even by and large, the 2000s, people paid money to go see a band, a singer, people dancing. There is a human element that you are going to witness, right? So whether it's a person who's really good at playing guitar, whether it's a beautiful woman singing, whether it's a bunch of 16-year-old boys dancing around lip syncing, it doesn't matter. There's a human element of performance. Now, when you go see a DJ, not to knock any of them, because they all have their little stage gimmicks, so to speak, but for, by and large, they are just standing behind a table, either scratching, mixing, fist pumping, whatever. There really isn't a visible performance to witness with them. So what do you do? You throw a bunch of lights on stage. You throw a bunch of video on stage. You captivate people in new ways. Um, obviously, the technology has also played a major role in that because now, you know, throughout the 70s through the 90s even, up until the 90s, moving light technology wasn't prevalent unless you were a major touring act, you know, Guns N' Roses, a U2, Metallica, whatever the case may be. You know, a lot of it was just like old school theater lighting, park cans, maybe some strobe lights, whatever. Um, so, you know, so I, I, as the technology's moved forward, there's so much more that you can do. It's gotten cheaper in some ways, so that also helps. Now you can throw, you know, 
for what used to cost $10,000 to rent for a week, you can throw, you know, five times as much on stage as you could even 10 years ago. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and then on top of that, I think we just live in a society where people need more visual stimulation. You look at cartoons nowadays and you look at all these different like video games, all that kind of stuff. It's just like, think about, you know, like if you were to play the original Mario brothers now versus whatever the new crazy Mario is now, it's like, well, there's a lot more going on there visually than there used to be. But the game is better. I'll, I'll say gameplay is better on the original NES. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because like I used to love playing video games and then there came a breaking point for me where they just got to be too complicated. Yep. I can't do this anymore. Um, and that, now I can play a video game for like 20 minutes. My hands feel like they're going to explode and I'm a lighting designer. I push buttons for a living and I can't play a video game for more than 20 minutes. <laughs> Yeah, you know, video games, they've, they've changed a lot. Yeah. Lighting's changed a lot. I think everything in our culture has changed and evolves. And, um, you know, attention spans is a big thing. Like, everybody's watching just quick videos on YouTube. Obviously, TikTok, which apparently is getting banned tomorrow or something. Um, oh, I haven't gone down that rabbit hole. I'm actually, I'm actually uh, separating myself from social media as we speak. I just watched The Social Dilemma last night. Okay. It had a profound impact on me, and I'll just say that. And I'll be making some uh, some announcements regarding all of that and just stepping away from the social media thing for a little while because it's it's gotten to be too much. I there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, sadness that I am witnessing in the world, and I just can't deal with it anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I haven't watched that yet, but I've intentionally. Uh... It is a must-see for, I, I mean, every person on the planet, I think, at this point. It really opens, it opens a lot of doors. And it's not just social media, because that's kind of the misconception, right? Like Facebook is the enemy or some crazy thing like that. It is, it is our over-reliance on technology and the services that encapsulate it that have become this almost like invasive species in a, in a, in a way, the way that the, the way that interact with things like Google and even like Gmail and like all of these different things and the way that they're all interconnected and the way that they all kind of manipulate the human existence is becoming an issue. Um, and yeah, watching that was just, it was really eye opening and, uh, and I started to see a lot of these things in myself. And I was like, you know what? Like, it's time to take a step back. Like, they're, they're bringing up a, really, a lot of good points. And I am self-aware enough to know when I am doing something wrong. And if somebody's showing me that the thing that I am doing is wrong, you got to make a change. <laughs> nice. Well, I guess I'm going to have to check it out. I guess I have weekend plans now. So, Awesome. Well, Greg... Thank you so much for being on the podcast and sitting down and talking with us. I really appreciate it. I think you've got a lot of great things to say, and um, I hope everybody checks out your website, checks out your projects that you've got going on. Are you going uh, to completely go off like Instagram as well? No, no. I'm going to keep the Instagram alive. I'm going to keep my business accounts alive. Okay. Uh, I'm going to pass them off probably to a social media person. 
Um, and I, you know, one of the things that I kind of learned from that too is, um, and I think, you know, I think we can all attest to this who, you know, if we, if we are using social media to further our, our business goals or our artistic goals or whatever the case may be, right. There's a lot of positive that comes from that. You want your art firm to be, to be seen. You want it to be, um, in front of as many people as you can get it in front of. Cause you, right. you want to know, you know, that you're, you know, you're doing something that, that has meaning or that has value or whatever the case is. Right. Um, and so, but one of the things that I started to uh, come to the realization of is that like, is there a, or, or I guess I'm still, I'm still working on this aspect. Is there a benefit to detaching my personal feelings from my business goals, right? And it's, that's an, it's an interesting kind of quandary to be in, right? Because you want, you want, especially when you're an artist, you want you to be attached to your art, but also at the same time, can you also be your own worst enemy? And so I think having another person as kind of the gatekeeper for that mm-hmm. to help you kind of see your way through it. Because at the end of the day, right? Like if I have a social media manager, right? I send him a video and I go, I want you to post this tomorrow. This is really important to me. And um, this is what I would like to say about it. Having that person there to kind of proofread what you said and be like, well, you know what? maybe you should try saying it this way, or maybe we should leave this part out, or maybe you shouldn't say anything at all because the video says enough for itself. Right. Right. And so that's kind of the conclusion that I've come to is that, you know what, maybe I'm too personally invested in my business as like uh, aspirations. And so to have somebody kind of, you know, be the buffer there to help me, you know, clean it up a little bit, um, I think is going to be valuable. And then, you know, I, that's not to say that like, I'm just gonna be like, well, never going on Instagram again. I'm never going on Facebook again. You can all kiss my butt. Like, no, that's, that's, that's the furthest thing from the truth. It's just helping me, uh, get, get, get a little bit more, uh, clarity in my relationship with all of it. And then also just not spending as much time Right. Flipping through the because Jesus, but uh, one of the one of the cool ideas that I had is to actually like uh, start like a hotline or something along those lines. And so, because like Google Voice is one of those great things where it's like you can link it to your phone if you choose to, or you can just get all these voicemails and then you can listen to them whenever you feel like. And I was like, well, what if I just do like an old school hotline? It's like if I can't talk to you on Facebook anymore as a person, right? If Greg Ellis disappears from Facebook. How are all the Pretty Lights fans going to get in touch with me? <laughs> I'm going to start a hotline. So you can call the shark line or whatever you want to call it and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll call you back. Maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll air your, your message on my podcast. Who knows? I haven't quite figured it out yet. Um, you know, I got ideas running through my head about how, how much fun it could be and how, how much potential there could be to doing something like that. Because then at the end of the day, there's a real connection happening there. If somebody is willing to take the time to pick up the phone, call me, leave me a message, and then I am willing to take the time 
to listen to said message, pick up the phone and call them back. That's connection. You know, not this. Oh, I just sent you a text. All right, cool. Whatever you, you tell me what you think, you know? And so I think more of us need to get back to that world of like genuine connection. And especially in a time where we can't gather together like we're accustomed to. It's like, you know what? I've talked to more people over the phone in the last six months than I probably did in the three years prior to that. And that's been an amazing thing. Um, and so, yeah, this is just kind of furthering that, that whole notion of just, you know, we'll see where it goes. I don't know. I mean, this, this is, is all developed in the last 24 hours. My fiance was so funny because like my fiance was passed out and I watched it and I woke her up and I was like, I'm deleting my Facebook tomorrow. Backing up all the photos, I'm deleting it tomorrow. And she's like, what? I was like, you got to watch the social dilemma. She's like, why didn't you wait for me? I was like, you got to watch it alone. I think every person, I think it's such a personal thing. I think every person should watch it alone. That's the other thing I have to say about that. All right, good tip. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Google Voice, when I, you know, this was 10, 11 years ago, um, it was before the iPhone let you um, take uh, your voicemail messages as MP3s or I guess MP4s. Um, Google Voice would, if you switched your voicemail over to Google Voice, it would save them as MP3s. So for about a year, I saved all my voicemails because this was, texting was around, but it wasn't like, like it is now, yeah. Um, so I saved all my voicemails and I ran them all through AutoTune. Uh, <laughs> you know, in, things from dry cleaners, doctor's offices, friends, you know, they all sounded funny, like T-Pain style. But my mother, anytime my mother left a voicemail for, for me, you know, her pitch would go up and down, just like, hey, just seeing what you're doing. <laughs> These are the most amazing recordings ever. Um, uh, and I never really did anything with him. It was more just, I'm going to do that because I can. And, you know, um, it, was, it was a fun experiment. I'll say this, and this, is, this goes exactly to what, you know, you're just talking about. And, uh, and this is, if, if, we're gonna, if we're getting close to wrapping this up, this would be my advice to every artist, every person out there. Don't take yourself so seriously and not everything has to be for a reason. There's nothing wrong with utilizing whatever talents you have, whatever tools you have at your disposal to just amuse yourself sometimes because, you know, life is hard and we all struggle with, with the things that come our way and like, if there's one thing that I've gotten really, really, really good at, it's amusing myself. And there's nothing wrong with that. As long as it's not, as long as you're not like, you know, uh, sacrificing, you know, the things that you should be doing. If you have free time or if you have, if you're, if you have like the writer's block, so to speak, you know, I, I use that term openly for any artist, you know, artist block, writer's block, whatever. Like sometimes just doing something so goofy, something that you would just be like, I, I, I can never let anybody see this. Those are the best things to help you move forward in the project or to like get to like a new place in your creative journey. Totally. Um, and they don't have to do anything. It's just that fact that you did it is like, it's the greatest thing in the world. I mean, I've got hard drives full of the dumbest stuff that I'll never look at and I will never delete them because <laughs> 30 years from now, when I start to lose my marbles a little bit, maybe then I'll look back and I'll be like, you know what? At least you had fun while you did it. <laughs> Definitely. No, that's good advice. And 
I I appreciate the advice, and uh, I think that's a good uh, good ending right there. So, all right. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, dude. Yeah, well, thank you, man. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, um, I hope you know the rest of quarantine. Hope hope it doesn't last that much longer, but uh, we'll see. Who knows? People I, follow directions. That's wash your hands, wear a mask. One day at a time. That's that's it. Just yep. you can't do anything more than that. Totally. One day. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, and uh, I will see you soon. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to this episode. You can find links and images from today's guest on our website, rimcad.edu forward slash remotely creative. Don't forget, our guests also want to answer your specific questions, which can be submitted to remotely creative at rimcad.edu. That's rmcad.edu. Make sure you subscribe to Remotely Creative wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Special thanks to our team here, Gretchen Marie Schaefer, Chris Daly, Mel Kern, Neely Patton, Josh Smith, and Madeline Austin for making today's episode possible. Thanks, everyone. Take care of yourselves and each other.